who our God is. God, we are thankful um, that we get to gather here today and to worship you. And God, I ask this morning that you would help us see your worthiness and your goodness and that you are a God who's worthy to worship. God, we thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus, so that we might have life, that we might uh, be called your own, that we may be uh, your kids and belong to you. And so God, I ask that for all of us this morning, um, would your Holy Spirit work in our hearts? Lord, you know exactly where we are in this moment, what we brought into this room, what we're struggling with. Um, God, whether even if we believe in you or not, you know exactly where each person is in this room. And I ask, Holy Spirit, would you do the work of an illumination in all of our hearts? Help us see where our need is for you more. And help us know that you are a holy God who's good and worthy to worship and that who can help meet those needs wherever those might be. And so, Lord, we love you, um, and we give this time over to you, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you please remain standing for the reading of God's word? Good morning. Uh, my name's Kirsty, and this morning I'm reading Joshua 10, 40 through 43. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and Negeb, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Geza and the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. This is God's word. Thank you, God. All right, you may be seated. Well, good morning, uh, church family. It is so good for us to, to be together today. Um, for those of you who I don't know, uh, my name is Brian Carroll. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Um, our other pastor, Ryan, uh, him and his wife are on a mini sabbatical and just taking a season of rest and just, uh, just seeking just the Lord's presence in that. And so just be praying for them as they're in that season. And we, we just uh, are excited for them to be back. But um, anyways, it is good for us to, to be together uh, this, this morning. And so um, one other thing that I do also want to bring up as, as well, I mentioned this last week, I just see some, some new faces. Um, we are certainly glad that you are here. Um, if you want to know more just about what it means to, to just to jump into our church family, in a seat in front of you, there's a little link and a little form you can fill out. Um, you can fill that out, and we'll be in contact with you and just kind of share a little bit more about who we are, um, how we do things, and, and just what does it look like to be, be a part of the life of Redeemer. And so we'd love for you just to, if you're interested in connecting a little bit more, we'd, we'd love just to, to connect with you. So anyways, so all right, if you haven't already, go ahead and turn your Bible to, to Joshua chapter 10. And we're going to be covering a good chunk uh, of Scripture this morning. So we're just going to jump right in. And so, um, but before we do, uh, how many of you guys enjoy watching Planet Earth? 
Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Those nature documentaries. Um, they're amazing. Anytime I hear David Attenborough's voice just beginning to narrate, I, I just my heart just gets thrilled and I get really excited. And so y'all know who David Attenborough, he's like the guy who narrates these British accent, just sounds wise and anyways. But, um, uh, but typically when you watch one of these documentaries, you'll, you'll see a couple of things. You might see, as you, as you, as you turn on, on the show, uh, just these beautiful images of just mountains and forests and beautiful desert lands. You might see animals just blissfully just eating grain in the field. And just you might all, see all these just really beautiful, serene images uh, of the bliss of nature. Then what you might also see is the brutality and carnality of these animals just going at each other. Right, you'll see like you know walruses like attacking one another, just trying to, to get a, a lady. You'll see all these little gophers trying to run for their life. I mean, you see a whole spectrum of these things in these shows. Uh, but one of the images that that always comes to my mind when I watch these shows is you see the you think about the little like little gophers or little beavers, uh, and then who are trying to like they're just like minding their own business, and then out in the distance. You see someone like a lion or a predator who's just like kind of crouching uh, behind some grass or, or something like that, just waiting to pounce. Now, now put yourself for one moment in the in the spot of the little little rodent or gopher or whatever your choice is. You can pick. This is your story too. So, um, but just put yourself in that image. If you kind of like on on the peripherals saw saw this predator like crouching, um, ready to pounce on you, here's what you probably wouldn't do you probably wouldn't be like, oh, that's a cute little animal. Uh, or you probably wouldn't be like, hey, Mr. Lion, uh, do you want to come over for lunch? Not realizing you're going to be the one who's going to be the lunch. Um, right? But more than likely, that's not what's going to happen. What are you going to do? You're going to run. You're going to go. You're going to like, like, I know like, like if you go to Unidad Park, all those little gophers, there's like an underground city, I'm pretty sure. Like you're going to go find somewhere safe. So you're not going to get attacked by this predator. You're not going to treat this enemy lightly. You're going to probably, hopefully, get away. Right? So I don't know if in your imagination you did or not. I'm going to assume you guys did. So, but, but here's the thing. It's, it's a funny image. Um, it, it's a funny image. But, but the reality is um, most, a lot of us at times this will create this hospitable environment uh, for our own sin. What we'll, we'll create with this, this, this thing that proposes a giant threat to every one of us, a lot of times what we will find ourselves doing is creating an environment for our sin um, to, be, to, to survive. As, as one pastor has put it, he says it's almost like we're creating this hospitable environment for our sin. Instead of seeing it as a threat towards us, as something that actually is a life killer as, as opposed to a life giver, we roll out the red carpet and we, we just are, take it lightly. We just don't see it as a, as a serious thing um, as we uh, just men try to follow Jesus. And so as we're going to see in Joshua 10 this morning, as you probably already noticed, these are some of the harder texts of Joshua 10. Um, some of the things that might make us a little bit more uncomfortable as we read them. And, 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 and hopefully we'll have to bring some understanding to what, what these things are saying. Um, but one of, these, one of the things that Joshua 10 is going to make abundantly clear is that God is not neutral towards sin. And it is actually for our good that he's not neutral towards our sin. So it is for our good that God is not neutral towards our sin. And so if you're with us last week, um, we talked about the, we looked at the first 15 verses of Joshua 10, and we talked about this idea how God is both sovereign and faithful to those who belong to him. God is, when we say sovereign, it means that he's in control over all things. He has authority over all things. 
And he, when we say he, he's faithful, it means that he, those who belong to them, specifically those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, like, he is always with us. No matter what it is we're struggling with, no matter what we're going through, he is always with us. And we saw that as he was ultimately fighting for Israel as they were trying to defend uh, the Gibeonites. These nations came against them and ultimately the Lord said, hey, I have given them into your hands. And so we see this actually, this weird interplay of the Lord being in control, but this, this Joshua didn't respond in passivity, but yet in obedience and they fought these people. And so we see, though, that God is ultimately the one who, who fights for us. He is sovereign and faithful. And so the story picks up in verse 16. So I'm going to read verses 16 through 21, and you can follow along. The text says, These five kings fled. So the five kings that they went to seek to destroy in the first 15 verses. These five kings fled and hid themselves in a the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings had been found hidden in the cave of Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But you do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter the city, their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. And so when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with the great blow until they were wiped out, and when, they, and when the remnant remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. And so what we see here is in these first five verses, so the kings were captured, and, and as they were capturing these kings, um, Joshua encourages his army to continue to pursue the rest of the army of those kings and go destroy, destroy them. It says the text says that he struck them with a great blow. And one of the things that we see is so interesting in, in verse 19, he, he gives some kind of language that, he's, that we've heard God use to him before. He says, pursue your enemies uh, and enter the cities for the Lord has given them into your hand. That's exactly what God said to him back in the first 15 verses. The Lord has given them into your hand. And so we see that they pursue them and the, their enemies and they strike them with a great blow. So they're walking in obedience to what the Lord is, is doing. And then as the, cha the chapter actually pivots back to the kings in verse 25, and what we see again, see, we see this all throughout Pepper, throughout these verses, that the, Joshua begins adopting the language that the Lord has also given him. And we see it again in verse 25, as we did in verse 19. And he says um, about the kings, or about, no, he says this to the other warriors of Israel. He says, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And what, what just happened and what happens in this scene is that those five kings that were hiding in the cave, they thought they were going to be safe. Ultimately, they're humiliated and, and, and they're executed and put to death. And so, so, but we see that Joshua is adopting this language. And he's, 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 you can tell he's communing with the Lord. He's adopting this language. But then, and then so Joshua proceeds to kill the kings. He, they hang them on a tree, probably by their arms, until the evening. And then in verse 28, Verse 28 is when we begin to hear some verses that we're, we maybe have some questions about. We're not quite sure. Um, but verse 28 says, um, And as for Makeda, Joshua, that was the city where all the rest of the armies fled to. They were trying to escape. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on the day and struck it, and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the king of Makeda 
just as he had done to the king of Jericho. And then when you look in verses 29 through 39, so it's in your Bible might be labeled uh, the conquest of, the, of southern Canaan. Um, you see that pretty much they're going through town to town and, and, and pretty much using the same language as being used, that, that God gave them into their hands, or they left none remaining. They devoted everything to destruction. The picture that's being created here is that Israel was coming through, the Lord was fighting for them, and they were overtaking and devoting these cities to uh, complete destruction. And so, so when we get to these verses, these are the verses that a lot of people in our world, in our culture, have, have a hard time with. You might hear things of like, oh, God is a genocidal God. Look in Joshua 10. Or, or God is a racist. Look what he's doing in, in Joshua, Joshua 10. Or we might hear things like, God really isn't good because he's killing all these innocent people. It, it's texts like these we have actually a lot of people walk away from the faith because they don't really understand what's, what's really going on. And, and for others, it's texts like these that they love to use as ammo for their Facebook arguments of how showing how God's not good. These verses do reveal something incredibly important about who God is, but it's none of those things. It's none, it's none of those things. What these, what these texts, no doubt, like these texts are very hard to navigate. They're, they're, they're very, they might kind of make us a bit uncomfortable, but what is, these texts are ultimately revealing is that God takes sin very, very seriously. God takes sin very, very seriously. And so, but what's important for us to see this, I think we need to kind of stretch this out a little bit. We kind of need to do some digging. And so we're actually going to do a little bit of Bible study for a second, but because I, I want just to see the full scope of what does God mean when he's saying devoted everything to destruction and why is he doing this? Why is he having them devote everything to destruction and what is he really getting at? And so how are we to make this sense of these verses when they use phrases like uh, they left none remaining, they devoted all to destruction? And so, so first off, a little cultural thing. It's so important for us to remember that Joshua was written to the audience of its day, which was not post-Enlightenment America, right? We're not the original audience of, of Joshua. It's so important for us to understand that. So Joshua happened around the time of history called the Brown Age. And the Brown, the, sorry, not the Brown, the Bronze Age. Um, the Bronze Age was a time in history where, where bronze uh, was starting to be used by all these different cultures and, and different even writing systems were beginning to come into play. And so they were uh, very, very much, uh, as they're writing um, these scripture, or script, or Joshua was being written and also other uh, books as well around that time that weren't biblical, one of the things that they would use very much often was hyperbole or exaggeration to get their point across. This is a thing that you see very, very common in writings from that time, is that hyperbole and exaggeration was being used ultimately just to make the point of, of whatever it is at the point they were trying to make. So you think about it. Um, the, Joshua, the text says they devoted everything to destruction, but did everyone die? No, because it says in, in the text that, that there was a remnant. There was a remnant that escaped to the fortified cities. Uh, we also see later in Judges that some of the nations that they had devoted to destruction here, and there were still some that were remaining. So, so, so the question is then, uh, if, if not everybody died, but yet the text says uh, we devoted everything to destruction, is there a contradiction? No. Because the writer was using a literary device that was very much common in that day to make a point. So what was the point that they were trying to make? Think about it this way. 
if I were to tell you, um, hey, the Chicago Bears just absolutely obliterated and destroyed the Dallas Cowboys, right? What would you think? Most of y'all think it was like, nah, that ain't gonna happen. We ain't gonna lose the Bears. Um, but but, but when, you, when I say that, uh, I'm not literally saying that like all the Cowboys are dead, right? I'm not saying that. What we are saying is though that, that, that game, the way that that game played out is that the Cowboys had little to no influence or success in that game. They were destroyed. They were obliterated. They had literally nothing left to give. They had no influence. They had no control. They had no power. They were completely subdued. So when Joshua is making the point that they devoted everything to destruction, it's this idea that the Canaanites, this, these countries that they were destroying, literally had no more influence. Was there a remnant? Yes, and we're actually going to get to that in, in a second. Was there some people left? Yes, but was there influence? Was there control? No. Now, now did a lot of people die? Yes. Was there destruction? Yes. But, but what really what jo- the language that Joshua is using is getting at is the point of that, when they say everything was devoted to destruction, it's ultimately that they had nothing, no, the Canaanites, the cities they were attacking had no influence left. And that's what's being communicated here. And we see that ultimately it was God's power. Hang on to this thought. It was God's power uh, that ultimately led this charge. Joshua and his army had a part to play. They had to be obedient, but it was ultimately the power of the Lord that, that ultimately set this about. Now, the question then remains, so, so if we kind of, kind of understand some things, the question then remains, why did God do this? Why, why did God um, do this? And so I want to help us see, let Scripture interpret Scripture. This is what's so cool about the Bible, is that the Bible will answer these questions if we just dig enough a little bit. So go ahead and flip. We're going to flip a little bit. So hang, put your finger in Joshua 10. Um, but flip over to Exodus 19. So we're asking the question, why did God do this? Why is God telling Joshua and the Israelites to devote everything to destruction? And keep in mind as well, this is, this is the point, one of the points that we're getting at is that God is not neutral towards sin. I want us to keep that thought in mind because that's super important as we navigate and try to answer this question. But why did God do this? And so in Exodus 19, um, Israel, this is the generation that just left Egypt, the first generation, um, and they're about to receive the law. And what the law was, was essentially what is, was a, a, a list of, of, of how they were supposed to live in this new land that the Lord was giving to them, or the promised land. And so in, and in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, we see an incredible identity statement that is ultimately reflective of the kind of people that they were supposed to be. So look in verse 5 of Exodus 19. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And catch verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Israel, what God was calling Israel to be, was to be a nation that was unlike other nations. They were, he had set them apart as he calls a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And so this law that they were receiving, and as they were to walk in these things, it was ultimately meant to point the other nations to who the one true God was. And so God had set them apart. And by living as God's people, they would be a nation that would point people to the one true God. And so 
the other question then remains, what were these other nations like? Why, why was it so important, um, as we're seeing in Joshua 10, for them to be destroyed? So go ahead and now flip over to Deuteronomy 20. Go ahead and flip over to De- Deuteronomy 20. And so as you're flipping there, um, uh, one of the things also to keep in mind, so Deuteronomy um, was, was kind of uh, written towards the end of Moses' life. Uh, a lot of the people who would have heard this will be the ones who might potentially even be the ones fighting in Joshua 10. And we see in verse 16, we see a, get a glimpse of the reason why it was so important that these nations, what these nations were like and why the Lord is calling Israel to do what he's calling them to do. He says in verse 16 of chapter 20, but in the cities of the peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save all alive, nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God commanded, that they, check in 18, that they may not teach you according to do to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. What were these abominable practices that these nations were doing? For the gods that they had worshiped in that area, the things that you would see a lot of in order to appease that God was a ton of sexual promiscuity. And you would also see sacrifices of children amongst many other wicked things. Their ways were not the ways of God. Their ways were full of wickedness and darkness. And the nations that were listed right here in these verses are the nations and the cities that they're destroying in Joshua 10 were a part of these nations. So so what we're seeing is ultimately a fulfillment of what uh, was happening in Deuteronomy. What we see in Joshua 10 was was a fulfillment in in, in Deuteronomy. Now really quick, go back to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. I want us to see one more thing. This is an important thing for us to catch because the reason, this kind of begins to flesh out even more the reason as to why God is having having them do this. And so look in verse three through five of chapter seven. He says, you shall not intermarry with him. Talking about the foreign nations. Giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash into pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram, which was an idol and burn their carved images with fire. So we see this very serious language that's going on here that they were to devote these things to utter destruction because ultimately um, God knew, God knew if they did not, what does the text say? They would adopt the practices of the land. They would jump into this idol worship. They would jump into this promiscuity. They would jump into all these other practices that were wicked and contrary to the way of God. And so what God is calling them to do is absolutely crush them. Ultimately, what he's calling them to do is to burn their idols down, destroy things so that there was no remnant of influence left. And Joshua knew, if we can go flip over back to Joshua 10, Joshua knew, uh, Joshua knew these texts, by the way. He knew Deuteronomy. He knew that if he did not destroy these things, he would be setting up Israel ultimately to be 
it, creating a culture in which sin would thrive, that idolatry would thrive, and they would ultimately be falling back into the practices of these other nations. Joshua knew what was at stake because he knew the Torah. He knew these things that we had just read. He knew what God had warned, warned about. And what we also see, what Israel is also doing, is that God is using Israel to ultimately bring judgment to the Canaanites and to these nations because of their wickedness and their own sin. Their own sin brought about their own destruction. Their own disobedience, their own unrepentant sin brought about their judgment. And so, but what we ultimately see is that God was not wanting them to have a space for their idolatry to thrive. And so the running thread, as we think through this text, the running thread needs to be um, that we see that God cannot be neutral towards sin. We think about in this case, if God was neutral towards the sin of the Canaanites, what would be continue to be practiced? And like kids' lives would be lost. Like darkness would prevail. Promiscuous, like all these things that are wicked and not good, not just would prevail. And so God is using Israel to bring judgment about. And so he cannot be neutral towards sin. And as he was there to enter the promised land, he did not want them to be in an environment for that sin to thrive. So we need to kind of catch the weight of the seriousness here. That, that sin is not just this, this oh man, like it, it's a big deal. Like God takes sin very, very seriously. And that's hard for the culture that you and I live in today because we live in a world that elevates the, the, the human self, the, the, our, the own, our own individuality above the sovereign God. We live in a world where we get to be the arbiters of what is right and what is wrong. And so it's hard for us to grasp the idea that, because if we acknowledge that sin's a real thing, then we're also acknowledging that you and I can be wrong, that you and I can be broken, that we can be flawed. There's actually something within us that's not quite right. And the reality, when we acknowledge sin, we're essentially acknowledging this idea that we can be wrong. And that flies right in the face of the world that you and I live in. And so that's why when we get a text to like this, we get a bit uncomfortable because we see how serious God takes sin. And, and, and ultimately what this text is hoping us, to, hoping us see is that, um, that, that ultimately, that just as God did not want them to have an environment, Israel, Israel, as they were entering into the promised land, for their sin to thrive, it is so important for you and I to adopt that same mentality of, we want to be so, so careful to not have practices and things in our life that are causing our sin to thrive. That we're, we're, We want to be so careful that we're not inviting our sin. We're rolling out the red carpet of it. We're creating a warm, cozy environment for it. And so what this text is, is doing, it's causing us to help us really, really consider this, this idea of devoting things to destruction that are causing me to not have my eyes on God? Am I doing the same thing? And so, I mean, really what we think about sin, um, when we value sin, we don't value God. Or what sin is, is this valuing anything else, something else above God. It can be, it can be flat out things that are just like really, really like bad, or it can be neutral things. It can be good things, but we're placing it in a higher value than God. And so sin 
is ultimately this thing that we value more than God. There's a Puritan um, named John Owen. He says it like this. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And, and, and the question becomes, is am I creating an environment in my own heart for my sin to thrive? And so, so what does it mean, though, for us to make a home for our sin? What does it mean for us to, like, roll out the red carpet, to, 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 to welcome it? Because I think most of us in this room would agree on some levels, like, yeah, sin's not a good thing. It's bad. But if we're not careful, we can easily just have things in our life or invite things in, into our life that are slowly just maybe just kind of, they're, they're pricking away. So, so, so one of the things that we might do in, in making sin hospitable is compromise. So, so compromise is just this, it's this idea of like, oh, I'm not like fully jumping into this thing, but I'll kind of like meet in the middle a little bit. And so for us, compromise uh, might, might look like, oh man, I'm just going to like just one little flirt with someone who's not my spouse. That's fine. Uh, I'm going on this website. It's not technically porn, so it's fine. Or I'm going to have this conversation at work about this other person. It's not technically gossip. Uh, and, and so that pattern repeated and multiplied. All of a sudden you see compromise after compromise after compromise after compromise. Sin begins taking root just a little bit deeper. Sin begins taking root just a little bit deeper. My, my uh, first couple years of, of college, whenever I graduated high school and came to ASU, I made every intention to get plugged into a local body, um, to find other believers, to find a church. Um, so, but one Sunday of not finding a church became two Sundays, became three Sundays, and became a whole year. And the result for my own life, I'm not saying it's going to be for everybody, but the result for my own life was ultimately I found more joy and value in just kind of a party lifestyle than I did Jesus. And so for me, it didn't just start like from overnight of like, all right, I'm, I'm going to go get drunk tonight. It, it just, little compromises here and there. And so, so that's a way in which we can help our sin thrive is if just little compromise. So where might you find yourself compromising? Where might you find yourself just like being kind of justified? I'm like, oh, that's okay. It's not a really big deal. That, that word white lies, that's not really a big deal. I'm not hurting anybody. Because those are things like that, how sin begins to take root and, and, and enter into our hearts. But it can also look like us not being honest with ourselves, us pretending that we're okay when we're really not okay. Uh, it's kind of like this. If you were in your front yard um, or parking lot uh, and you're talking to your neighbor and all of a sudden behind you, you see your house on fire uh, and just everything is going up, uh, up in smoke, chances are you're not going to be neutral towards that, right? Chances are you're not going to turn to your neighbor and just be like, oh, it's fine. It's cool. It does that. Uh, that's my house. So Move. Uh, right? chances are you're going to like, oh my gosh, you're going to address the issue. You're going to see the reality of the situation, dress it, call 911. Uh, if you're a fireman, you know, I, whatever it is, you're going to do something to try to fix the problem. And so what a lot of us might do is that a lot of our own souls right now might be on fire. We might be pretending that everything's okay, that I'm not really struggling. Things aren't really as bad. And the reality is, man, things up behind us are just going up in flames because you're not willing to be honest. But hey, I really am struggling this a lot with this thing. I really am wanting to, like, like, we have to be so careful. It's so easy for us to get into a mindset of that I have to pretend to be okay. And when we do that, we're not going to be honest about where we're truly broken. And when we are not honest about what we're truly broken, sin will then begin to make a home in your heart. See, it's, it's, not, it's, like, it's, it's not just these, these obvious things a lot of times. It's these, these little subtle little things that we're not even almost aware of. 
But when those things are multiplied, then all of a sudden we find our hearts a little bit more corroded than we would have originally liked. And then just really some of us, if we're just honest with ourselves, we like our sin. I mean, we can be honest here. Sin can be fun, right? Like sin can, like, sin can times feel good. It feels right. It, it, like, it, it can feel right to, to hang on to that grudge a little bit. It can feel right to do that thing. It can feel right. And so some of us, like, we like our approval. We like our comfort. We like our power. We like whatever idol that is we're crafting up in our own hearts. We like those things. And so to give up those things means that we're giving up something we like. And ultimately, when we just man, don't really want to give things up, then again, that shows that we are valuing something else above God, and that's sin. And so we need to take sin seriously. We need to take our sin seriously because it will destroy you. Paul wasn't being cute when he said the wages of sin is death. He wasn't trying to just to be like, uh, make, oh yeah, like make a cute little verse that we quote all the time. Think about that verse for a second. The wages of sin is death. If we are giving our life over to sin, the outcome will not be good for us. It will not be life. That's one of the things that sin promises us. Is it promises us like life and goodness, and this will make you happy. But, but what we see in the text is that's not at all the case. And so I have literally seen um, friends' lives destroyed because they thought their sin was not a big deal. I have seen friends literally lose their life because of sin. So do we see why God takes this seriously? Do God takes sin seriously, yes, because he is holy and he is just and a perfect and holy God cannot be near sin. And, 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 we, and God takes sin seriously um, because ultimately, uh, he, he, all the world is supposed to be pointed to him. It's ultimately for his worship and glory. And sin, ultimately, when we value something else other than God, then, then, then what we see is an affront on his, not as front of him being holy, but we see just like his holiness being minimized in our own lives. But we also see why sin is such a big deal to God is because as he thinks about you and I, like sin promises this, this life. Sin will oftentimes promise goodness. But the only true pathway towards goodness is in Christ, is, is in him. Sin will never take us on a path towards what's best because, on what's best because sin will never take us on a pathway towards Jesus. And so, so, so how do we devote to destruction? How do we devote to destruction, obliterate our sin? Do we, do we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just try harder? Do we, do we clean ourselves up? Uh, or, or do we like, oh, I mess up. I'm never going to do that again. I'm, not, I'm just going to stop that. I'm not going to do that again. I'm, I'm, I'm going to promise. I'm just going to do better, try harder. I'm going to do all these things. Or do we find someone who's more powerful than us who can actually do something about our sin? How do we devote our sin to destruction? You don't work for it. You look to Jesus. You will find your sin being destroyed when you actually are honest with yourself and bring it to Jesus. Because he is ultimately the one who has the power to kill it and destroy it. He is ultimately the one who can actually do something about it. Really quick, look in, verses, look in Joshua uh, 10, 40, verse 42. It then said, 
And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Remember that again. The Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. As we've seen before in this text, we see this weird interplay of the sovereignty of God and the power of God and the obedience of man. Israel, yes, was called to be obedient and to destroy these nations because these nations, one, that he was, God was using them to, to judge them, but two, they were trying to obliterate the things that ultimately caused them to look away from God. But ultimately, whose power was it that was accomplishing it? God's. God was the one who was fighting for them. God was the one who was ultimately doing the work. And so when we look to Jesus, what we're understanding is that ultimately he is the one who has the power to actually forgive us and do something about it. He is the one who's ultimately able to give us the grace and help that we need to put this thing to death. Because ultimately in this, we are relying on a power outside of ourselves. Because if we're just trying hard to not do that thing anymore, like we will fail. And you might even say, well, I, I, I can. I can have the self-discipline. Okay, you can have self-discipline, but not have Jesus. Because the point of following, of this life, the point of following Jesus isn't to not just stop sinning more, but it's to know him more and to make disciples. And here's the reality. Like, ultimately, if he is the aim of our hearts, then why would we, not, why would we rely on anything else to try to devote these things, uh, to devote this sin to death that's trying to pull us away from him? So you and I, on our own, do not have the power to devote our sin to destruction. But thanks be to God for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who does. And, and certainly, like, this, isn't not, this is not me saying, like, if you know where you're weak, yes, put up safeguards in your life that are going to help you. If you feel like there's something in your heart that is like unforgiveness or there's, there's bitterness, yes, have those conversations with those people. If you feel your pull towards certain direction, yes, put people in your life, have relationships in your life who, who you can be brutally honest with. These are all good things. And we, like, as Christians, we need the body of Christ to help us point one another to Jesus. We need one another for that. But us, all these practices and these disciplines alone ultimately will not be the thing that helps devote our sin to destruction. We need an outside power. We need someone fighting for us. We need someone who's ultimately going to do the work for us as we obey. And that person is Jesus. And Tim Keller says like this, and we actually will find ourselves growing as we battle. As we wage war against our sin, we actually will find ourselves growing closer to Jesus. And, and, and so we've, you've heard me quote already Paul, the, 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 ver, Paul when he says in chapter 6, 23 of Romans, the wages of sin is death. But, but the second part of that verse is actually good news for us. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, life is found in the person of Jesus. Sin is destroyed in the person of Jesus. And so we devote our sin to destruction when we look to him. And I love this as well. We've also quote 1 John 1, 9 a lot. This is one we hear us say often. But John says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's what, justice God, here's what would be just. God would be completely just to, to, to leave us in our sin because it's that serious. 
Sin is separates us from God. Sin is a big deal. But the reality of, and the reality of Joshua 10 is that all of, we're the Canaanites. We're the ones who deserve to be devoted to destruction. We're the ones who are, 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 are the ones who are deserved to be um, gone and obliterated. And God would be just to do that because ultimately like he's perfect and we're not. And I'll say this, if that hits you a bit uncomfortably, because it did me, ask yourself the honest question, how serious do I take my sin? If that hits you a bit uncomfortably, ask yourself that honest question. But here's the thing, here's the thing. What did 1 John 1, 9 just say? God is just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness when we confess and repent of it. When we bring our sin to God, Jesus, who made a way for us to know him on the cross and ultimately gave his life for us, when we put our faith in Jesus and we bring our sin to him, God is just, meaning God is right to forgive you. Let me put it another way. If you confessed and repented of your sin to God and he did not forgive you, that would not be just. Do you see the good news here, church? Do you see the good news that ultimately we, God is right when we, we bring our sin to him because he will forgive us and he will cleanse us and that's good and right and just of him to do that. So this is how our sin is de- devoted to destruction is we bring it to Jesus because he's already done everything. He's done everything. And so what that means is that when we confess and we bring something to him, what we need to say is, God, I, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I find value, more value in these other things. I'm sorry that I find value in these other things. Would you help me ultimately find my value in you? And God is faithful and just to forgive you on that moment. He's right to do it. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? Doesn't that sound like a better way to try to defeat our sin by just trying harder? We will get tired of trying. We will get tired of doing the same old, same old again. Uh, try hard, mess up, and then repeat. Try hard, mess up, repeat. Is, anyone, is, that, is that anyone else's experience in here? Or is that just me? God made a way through the person of Jesus. God made a way. And the good news of Joshua 10 is that we have a God who can help us with our sin. Joshua, does, Joshua 10 does ask us to consider the question, am I making a home for my sin? Am I making it comfortable? But he, here's the gospel. Here's the good news. A lot of times, like we, we, the reason why we want to make our sin comfortable is because we don't want to be honest with ourselves. We don't want to be confessing it because when we confess it, that means like there's other things we have to confess and we don't want to go there. But no matter where you go, no matter what it is you confess, one, God already knows, and two, he's there with you. He's already there with you. He already knows you. He already knows these things. And he's not going to abandon you in the midst of the, the mess. But, but the, so the question I would ask us today, and, and as we wind our time down, and Ben, you guys can go ahead and uh, come on up. Is, are, are you making your sin comfortable? This isn't me saying, are you struggling? All of us struggle. All of us have things that we're battling. But do we see it as a battle? Are we willing to be open and honest with ourselves about our sin that we see this as something that that needs to be destroyed, otherwise it will destroy us? And are we looking to Jesus for the remedy? Are we looking to him for the remedy? And so the good news of of Joshua 10 is that, that 
we have a Savior who's fighting for us. The good news of, of, of Joshua chapter 10 is that no, we don't have to try to defeat our sin on our own. God hasn't, God hasn't left us by ourselves, but he's, giving us, he's given us his son. He's given us his son. And this is why we need to celebrate communion every week. When we celebrate communion every week, it's not that we need to be re-saved because that's not a thing, but we do need to be reminded. Every week, we need to be reminded um, of, of the goodness of Jesus. We need to be reminded that whatever it is that we're struggling with, we can bring it to him and he's gonna be faithful and just to forgive us of that. We need to be reminded of all these things because we live in a world where so much brokenness and so much, even in our own hearts, um, struggle happens where it's so easy for us to get clouded um, by what's true. And so when we take communion, when we partake of the elements, what we're reminding ourselves is that when I uh, eat, eat the bread, which represents the body of Christ. And when I drink of the juice, which represents the blood of Christ, that ultimately the finished work of Christ um, was enough to save me. It was enough to deal with my sin. And so we get to partake in these things and we get to be honest in these things. And here's, a, here's what I want to encourage us to use this time as, as we're taking communion. Allow yourself to pull the thread. Allow yourselves to be open and honest of, with the question, Am I, have I created a safe place for my sin? Pull that thread. Pull that thread. Because with each pull, what you're going to find is the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God. He's with you. He's fighting for you. And so, so don't be afraid to pull. Because what you'll find is, is the goodness of Jesus. You'll find a Savior who's willing to pull with you. And so... I ask, we do ask that if, if you aren't a believer in here, um, that you would refrain. Um, so the, the, the Lord's Supper is, is for the believer. Um, so, we, so we ask that you would just refrain from the elements, but we would ask you to consider Jesus. The broken parts of your life, this is what I would ask you, the broken parts of your life, what are you looking to to try to fix them? The struggles that you deal with, the anxieties, the fears, the secrets you don't want to know anybody about, what do you do with those things? How are you trying to remedy those things? I would encourage you and, and, and to, to consider, man, Jesus is the better option. Jesus is the better option. And so, so we need to be honest with ourselves. And with our honesty, all we're going to find from Jesus is grace. And so, so neck, and here, here's the good news. Next to the power of Jesus, your sin has no shot. None. Your sin doesn't have a chance of survival with the power of Jesus. So that's why we can bring it to him. So bring it to the light, whatever it is. Confess it, be open, be honest with it. And trust that ultimately we have a God who is for your good. And when things get hard and you might feel some fallout because of what you're bringing to light, know that even when it's hard, he is good and he's for you. He is for you. And that is where we want to be. He will fight for you. He's doing the work in you. He will transform you. So God, I pray that for each one of us that you would help us be honest. God, I know a text like today is hard it's confronting. It makes us uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. 
God, you do take sin seriously. You took us so seriously that you sent your own son to the cross to deal with it, to make a way for us so that we didn't have to be devoted to destruction ourselves, but rather we can have life in you. And so God, I ask and I plead for myself and for all of us in here that you would help us choose and look to you for life and nothing else. That you would help us be honest with ourselves. God, that you would, by the power of your spirit, would you help us not create a home for our sin because there is no joy in life in that, but only prisons and chains. So God, would you please, please help each one of us in this room please help us know that there is life in your son. Would you cause us to go to him more often? God, only you are the one who can do this work in us. So would you help us?